going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. And we're coming at you with another accredited episode tonight. Yes. Another behavioral health episode on top of it. It is. And, you know, I don't really know that we've touched on this one too much in most other episodes. I don't think we have. Maybe like a small Of course small it's been brought of, up. Yeah. Like, but usually we're like, yeah, we've, you know, we hit this in XYZ episode, but we're going to do a deep dive today. We've mm-hmm. definitely never done a full episode on it. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I don't think so. So we are going to be covering PTSD today. Mm-hmm. So not as drug heavy, obviously, as some of the other topics we've covered in psych, but, uh, but we'll spend some time talking through the... Um, intensive diagnosing process as yep. far as the you know assessments and all that and uh yeah we'll, we'll touch on the drugs and some algor- the algorithm that you can use to uh kind of navigate through the, the treatment process but and you know how we usually tell jokes and have quippy anecdotes throughout the podcast uh, yeah that's what we're known for might be kind of difficult today well, yeah well we might be able to find a way. why do you say that just it's a heavy topic ah, you know watch this. <laughs> watch this call. challenge accepted okay for well <laughs> i didn't know we were gonna have one of those episodes <laughs> But all right. Um, and we can't do too, too off the rails because this is an accredited episode. True. So for those of you who uh, are free CE Unlimited members, um, make sure that after you get done listening to this episode, um, which at some point will give you a password uh, during this episode to, you can use to unlock the post-activity tests. So once you get done listening, go take that test. It's 10 questions. You get one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. Uh, again, it's for free CE members and uh, all of our accredited episodes are on there it's got to be like right at 50 or a little over 50 episodes now i think wow. so definitely lots of opportunity for cashing on that continuing ed credit get your continuing ed for years with us Ye- <laughs> years and what's amazing is for a lot of instances you have to have specific credit for from a specific topic because you do some specific thing we got it all <laughs> well <laughs> almost uh, yeah basically most of it. We're going to we're just outpatient, get, outpatient topic. Sure, yeah. We're yeah. going to get just inundated with topics. So you haven't guys covered this. You haven't covered <laughs> yeah, that. All the emails of things we what have not I, done. Yeah. What have I done? We have a smattering of a lot. Is that reasonable to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. Okay. That's a that's a very fair assessment. I think that's conservative. <laughs> yeah. All right. But uh, yeah. So we're talking PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. It, in the grand scheme of things, a relatively new diagnosis. So um, it's not a new thing to occur, just a new new thing that we put a name on and that we can kind of systematically diagnose. So we're going to go through what, like Mike mentioned, kind of the intense diagnostic process from the DSM-5, um, but it has been included in other DSM criteria back to the DSM-3. Um, it was really post-World War II, post-Korean War, Vietnam War, along with um, them uh, noticing the severe psychological impact of um, things like rape that caused them to um, research the collection of symptoms that became known as post-traumatic stress disorder. So it was first included in the DSM-3 in 1980, um, and they've uh, since adjusted um, some pieces of it. So, for instance, in the dsm 3 a person had to experience an event outside of normal human experience that would cause symptoms um, in almost anyone. And later on, they came to realize that the symptoms can occur from common experiences like car accidents that led to a change in the criteria in the DSM-4. The DSM-4 has some specific language related to um, that the individual had to respond to the trauma that happened with intense fear or helplessness or horror 
Um, so even though the DSM-5 mentions that they can, this can happen, it's not a requirement. They kind of dropped that from the DSM-5. So it's become a little more um, broad in um, how it's uh, appreciated because they've, they've seen that it doesn't have to be such an unusual situation for somebody to suffer the symptoms of, of PTSD. They also moved it from being related to like an anxiety disorder to a new category of disorders that they refer to as trauma and stressor-related disorders. And the, the diagnostic criteria is, is pretty intensive, like Cole said. And uh, it starts off with, you know, the, the patient having to have some exposure to a threatened or actual death, violence, some type of serious injury in one or more of the, the following situations. So directly experiencing the traumatic event, personally witnessing the event that is happening to others, discovering a traumatic event, you know, occurred to a close family member or friend, um, and then experiencing extreme or repeated exposure to unpleasant details of traumatic events, you know, be work or whatever related. But uh, if, if those criteria are met in, you know, some capacity, that's the, the first sort of, um, you know, check you know, checkpoint. And then from there, you're really looking at the, the presence of a few different symptoms. Um, the idea of intrusion, the idea of avoidance, reactivity, and then also mood and cognition changes as well. So from a intrusive symptom standpoint, so the patients have to have at least one of these intrusive symptoms that are associated with the traumatic event and basically started after the traumatic event occurred. So you can't have any of these symptoms prior. Um, but what they mean by intrusive symptoms, it can be an involuntary recurrent or distressing memory of the traumatic event, um, recurrent dreams, dissociative reactions like flashbacks, um, prolonged or intense psychological distress at the exposure to certain cues, whether it be internal or external, um, marked physiological reactions to cues as well uh, that, you know, there are cues that resemble or symbolize the traumatic event. So any of those things would be an intrusive type symptom. And then from a, an avoidance standpoint, just obviously patients, you know, if they're avoiding or making efforts to avoid distressing thoughts, memories, feelings about that event, um, or you know, making efforts to avoid any kind of external reminders that, that bring distressing thoughts about the event. From a, a mood and cognition standpoint, you know, patients having this inability to recall important pieces of traumatic events, you know, this is like an amnesia component, um, exaggerated or ongoing negative expectations or beliefs about oneself, others, the world in general, um, continuous negative emotional state, you know, patients just angry and or shameful um, feelings of being estranged or detached from others, sustained inability to experience positive emotions, you know, just this overall inability to experience joy. And from a, a reactivity or, or hyper arousal standpoint, you know, this unprovoked irritable behavior, angry outbursts, self-destructive or reckless behavior, hypervigilance, difficulty concentrating, sleep difficulty. Right. You know, all of those things have to be present, and yeah. including the very first bullet point that we talked about as far as the initial event. And not only do they have to be present, they have to be present for more than a month. And the reason for that is within a month of the event, they call that um, acute stress disorder, I believe. But mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't classify it as um, post-traumatic stress disorder right. until after a month. And then even kind of separately, they can you can have chronic post-traumatic stress disorder Um uh, if it lasts longer, but um, greater than a month, and they need to cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of function. Um, 
but yeah. Uh, or they can't be related to like a substance yeah. abuse, like medication or alcohol, or something like that. Yeah, especially like you know the hypervigilance and some of these like more paranoid type uh, you know symptoms or reactions. It definitely could be induced by some sort of substance or medication or what right. have you. Even a normal medication yeah. is being used to treat some other mental yep. disorder or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So checking for that. And then they even take it one step further now with specifiers. After you've met the criteria for a PTSD diagnosis, they have specifiers attached where you can label the patient as having PTSD with dissociative symptoms, um, which is basically patients who are experiencing these, these persistent or recurrent symptoms. And it can be either what they call uh, depersonalization, where the patient's detached and you know, kind of having like this out-of-body experience, or derealization, which is unreality of surroundings basically the world's being experienced um but you don't see it as like being real or you know the actual it's it's like a dreamlike state so to speak so those things can be a dissociative symptoms associated with ptsd and then they also have ptsd with delayed expression is another specifier which is you know the, the full diagnostic criteria is met but it did not actually meet the full criteria for ptsd until at least six months after the event so that would be considered PTSD with delayed expression. Yep. So those specifiers can help with Medicare, you know, um, reimbursement or, or funds available to the patient, depending on how complex their health conditions are and things. Right. So it's important to add the specifiers and more information if, if you have it available. Right. Now, once you have a diagnosis and you have the related symptoms that we mentioned, um, gauging severity can be challenging, um, especially with mental disorders because a lot of it is somewhat subjective so um, they have there are a number of rating scales um, that you can find at ptsd.va.gov they have a whole list of scales Um, there's a couple we'll mention probably the most common one that you'll see in literature is the um, caps scale the clinician administered ptsd scale Um, some would consider this the gold standard it's a 30 item scale um, that's a structured interview corresponding to um, DSM criteria. It looks at 17 PTSD symptoms and targets the impact of symptoms on the social and the occupational functioning, um, improvements in symptoms, overall response validity, overall severity, frequency, intensity of, of symptoms like um, guilt or survival guilt or uh, gaps in awareness, T-personalization, things like that. Um, it's used to make a current or lifetime diagnosis or to assess symptoms over the past week. Um, so it can be used to help with the actual diagnosis piece. Um, it's also available as a rating scale for use in children and adolescents, which um, is kind of a whole nother um, a discussion. I don't know how much we'll get into it, but um, with kids under six, they kind of have a different way. There's a very much a different response to the trauma and kind of a different way of evaluating them. Um, sick, Kids 6 to, um, I believe it's 11, have somewhat of a different response to trauma than kids 11 to 17 who generally would respond like adults in a lot of cases. But anyways, they do have a, um, a CAPS scale for use in children and adolescents, and that's called the CAPS-CA scale. Um, and using this requires some specific training. The full interview process takes 45 to 60 minutes. Um, but yeah, it, it gives you some some... Um, valuable insight. Yes, valuable insight into if they're in remission, if they're having adequate response to a treatment, a partial response, a non-response. They can track it over time to uh, give an idea. 
And if you remember from like our depression or anxiety episodes we've done, you know, when we're trying to come up with, you know, a second line option or third line option, we, we always have that dilemma of do we switch to a completely new medication and, and just discontinue the one that they were previously on or uh, do we augment with something else and, and that goes right into what Cole was saying with that severity score obviously we have an idea of, of the improvement we can quantify their improvement versus them just saying that their their symptoms seem better just you know from their point of view but we can kind of quantify their score um, their, their cap score and see if it's we've, we see an improvement there then obviously right. we know we're moving in the right direction and even if they're not in remission it shows that we probably can augment versus switch to something completely new if we, if we did get at least a partial response right so the, um, besides the CAPS um, scale, there is another um, PTSD rating scale as well called the PTSD checklist um, or PCL as it's abbreviated sometimes. And there's different versions for like civilians, specifically for military personnel. There's also DSM-5 symptom specifics. So like the original was a 17 item um, scale that had to be filled out. Well, the DSM-5 version is 20 items. But it's self-reported, and um, it can be used in the process of diagnosis, screening, and monitoring symptoms as well. Yeah. Um, as far as why it happens or people who are at higher risk for developing PTSD after a traumatic event, um, because uh, people can have a traumatic event and not develop um, diagnosable PTSD. So why do people? Um, it's, you know, in many ways, it's unknown, but... Um, People have thrown out that uh, some individuals have a personal predisposition um, and that might be necessary for the symptoms to develop after a traumatic event. Biologically, the body's failure to return to its pre-traumatic state differentiates PTSD from a simple fear response because it can cause physical changes in the brain over time. Uh, from a genetics perspective, twin studies indicate selection of environment and potential exposure to trauma is partly determined by genetic factors so that can be um, be at play. Um, genetic influences would explain a substantial portion of the vulnerability to an individual being um, predisposed to developing PTSD versus someone else. Um, apart from that, prevalence about 1 in 27 um, or about 9.8 million people in the U.S. suffer from it. And um, there are a number of of risk factors that can increase the chances of developing it. Would you want to go through some of those? Yeah, and it, cause they can kind of be broken into the the pre traumatic, uh, you know, risk factors, the the peri traumatic and the post traumatic. Um, pre traumatic, obviously, being the most um, the 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 most options you have to kind of assess for, but you know patients tend to have a higher risk if you know to have another diagnosis of a different psychiatric disorder as well. So another you know behavioral health comorbidity definitely can increase the risk of developing or um, transitioning into P PTSD as well. And um, patients who have a history of substance abuse, alcohol use, or abuse, females do tend to be higher risk than male patients. Um, Overall, you know, personality can can play a role as well, kind of going into what Cole was saying. Um, patients that are lower education level, lower socioeconomic status, um, you know, they're a minority race. You know, there's certain things like that that do tend to make someone a higher a higher risk for developing PTSD. Now, when it comes to the, the peritraumatic you know, risk factors, you know, it's 
really comes down to the severity of the trauma itself. Um, you know, was, was there the perceived threat to life? Because obviously that can make a big difference on, you know, the patients and how they respond to the, the trauma afterwards. Um, you know, the, the emotional response that that particular patient had. And then whether or not there's dissociation present as well. If, you know, the body's trying to get out of, you know, its own head basically and trying to dissociate from the problem. Now, post-traumatic risk factors, you know, perceived lack of social support is a big one that we have to worry about because if, if, you know, that the patient does already kind of have all these stressors and these symptoms and then all of a sudden they're feeling alone and, you know, it can really spiral them out of control quickly. Um, also, you know, patients who have overall like dysfunctional patterns of social interactions um, definitely have higher risk of uh, developing PTSD and then subsequent life stressors obviously can worsen the, the potential, uh, you know, even if with the diagnosis of PTSD, if you have more stressors, it's going to make it that much worse potentially. Right. right. Um, as far as what you can expect for an individual over time, um, some studies suggest that symptomatic distress peaks within days to weeks after the trauma, as you could imagine, and gradually declines over the course of about a year after the trauma. Um, it can occur at any age. The presentation is not predictable because the symptoms can be related to a lot of the risk factors that Mike mentioned, um, but also duration and intensity of the trauma, other psychiatric disorders, how the individual deals with trauma on a personal basis. Um, the average duration in patients um, undergoing treatment, so the duration of illness for treated patients is 36 months, for untreated patients is five years. But about a third of patients develop PTSD with chronic symptoms that don't remit after those time frames. Um, women are less likely to recover. Personality often changes with impaired affect modulation, like self-destruction and impulsive behavior, dissociative symptoms, somatic complaints that aren't necessarily for other you know, medical, medical reasons, feelings of shame, hopelessness, or of being permanently damaged a loss of previously supportive beliefs, social withdrawal, feeling constantly threatened and feeling on high alert all the time. Um, and as you can imagine, the symptoms are associated with um, functional impairment, um, diminished quality of life, you know, difficulty working and participating in normal um, activities like family activities and other social things. Um, there are high rates of depression, up to 80%. 80%? Um, 80%. It really surprised me. Yeah. I mean, I guess it shouldn't, but... Yeah, you're basically you're going to be treating concomitant depression almost, right. almost definitely. Eighty percent chance you will. Eighty percent substance use disorders and up to fifty percent, and then um, suicide attempts, not suicidal ideation, but suicide attempts, and up to twenty percent, mm. which is extremely significant. Yeah. And you know, as far as some other pathophysiology goes, and, and I'll, I'll try to be brief with some of this, but there are a few different you know. Me mechanisms that have been proposed, pathways, if you will, um, for some you know, some of the things that can go wrong that they could put a patient uh, into this, you know, push them over the edge of having the, the PTSD diagnosis. And so um, issues with the um, HPA access, for example, uh, if it becomes dysregulated, um, you know, patients who are having abnormalities, you know, when it comes to 
you know, their ability to cope and whatnot that oftentimes can come from this dysregulation of the HPA system and, and elevated lymphocyte glucocorticoid receptors often are detected in these patients. They usually have higher cortisol, um, le- the ambient levels of cortisol um, may be lower, but, you know, chronic adrenal exhaustion may be the, the reason why those cortisone levels are, are low or cortisol levels are low. Adrenal exhaustion can happen from, you know, just persistent, severe anxiety. And patients also will will typically have lower urinary levels of cortisol that can be detected as well. Um, there's also, you know, the theory with somatic nervous system and, uh, Basically, patients, you know, having these this uncontrolled catecholamine release affects the formation of memories during the the trauma itself, and it's thought to exacerbate symptoms when the patient is exposed to certain cues. Um, you know, the alpha uh, androgenic postsynaptic receptors play a role as far as the startle response, the the sleep difficulty, um, the excessive activation of this, these receptors, and especially in the prefrontal cortex, tends to contribute to the expression of PTSD symptoms um, by stimulating that the postsynaptic and uh, androgenic receptor subtypes. So that's, you know, as we'll see when we get to some of the treatments, one of our uh, potential treatment t- targets is the alpha receptors. Um, the acoustic startle response where you have a, a really exaggerated response may come from um, basically an autonomic response that's alerting uh, to an impending threat that they've experienced in the past, and it's sort of like this you know, reflex that develops. Um, other abnormalities, obviously, issues with their sleep cycle in general, elevated thyroid function, um, dysregulation of the opioid system, suppression of um, immunologic function. So there's just it, the whole body can be affected just, you know, what seems like at the surface level, just a mood disorder, or a, you know, anxiety disorder. And it, it can wreak havoc on the, the, the body, you know, com- across the entire body. Yeah, I think the most surprising to me was the physical changes in size of portions of the brain was um, distressing. Mm-hmm. So how do we manage this? So interestingly, management really should start immediately after the trauma. They have There's, there's uh, an idea of something called psychological first aid, um, which is described to be very important to take place immediately after the, uh, or immediately in the aftermath of the traumatic event. Um, it's psychoeducation that the patient's initial symptoms are a normal reaction to an abnormal event, and they don't mean a person is weak or going crazy, um, and that the symptoms uh, will subside with time. It also includes providing for somebody, uh, the person's basic needs like shelter, food, supportive relationships, and reassurance that the support will continue, um, if you're a caregiver in that instance, it's important to avoid making like invalidating comments, saying kind of br- trying to brush it off, like saying it's not a big deal or asking why they're so upset or something like that. Um, why, why are you so upset? <laughs> don't say that. Yeah, don't say that. Um, cognitive therapy is the kind of the mainstay, and there are evidence-based um a number of evidence-based therapies that might kind of reference a couple, but one is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So we usually talk about CBT. This would be TF-CBT, trauma-focused CBT, um, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. All these sound like way over my head, but <laughs> also sound kind of very interesting. Um, so 
most of the studies do demonstrate that that these are more effective than um, medications in a lot of instances. But certain medications may be helpful in um, increasing the effectiveness of the therapies. Um, interestingly, they sometimes use propranolol to decrease arousal during therapy, um, and it may make extinction learning more effective, even though propranolol can impair memory. Um, but apart from that, treatment with an SSRI or an SNRI is, uh, is kind of the first-line um, pharmacotherapy. Um, when using pharmacotherapy, because that's kind of our bread and butter, we don't know a whole lot about the um, specifics of CBT, but for those out there that do, they are important. Uh, with a non-response to the initial antidepressant dose, um, you can increase the dose. You can try a longer duration. You can switch to another SSRI or SNRI. Um, or add psychotherapy if it's not already on there. With a failed second trial of an antidepressant, it's recommended to switch to a different SSRI or SNRI. You can consider mirtazapine. Um, another option includes um, adding psychotherapy if it's not already on there. And then with a failure of three trials, um, including trying the augmentation strategies, you'd want to reevaluate, is this actually PTSD? Is this something different? Um, possibly switch to a TCA or even consider some older drug uh, like phenylzine. And MAOI apparently has uh, some good solid data in PTSD compared to other agents, at least in one meta-analysis. Really? But uh, good luck getting you dealing with the, the monitoring and, the, you know, the I diet know. restrictions and, the yeah, it just seems like it, uh, I don't know, I'd be crossing my fingers hoping that one of these other first-line options works. I know. I meant to mention there's an interesting strategy um uh, where they think that playing a visually demanding game like Tetris shortly after the traumatic event can help interfere with the consolidation of the memories and might decrease hmm. risk of PTSD. I saw that. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Cause, well, and it's such a, like, how do you bro like broach that subject? I know. If somebody's <clears> like, <throat> you know, hey, I know you've been in this bad car accident, but what do you think about, level, do th what do you think about level three of Tetris real right. quick? How about some Pong? Yeah. Let's just do Pong. Ted, yeah, that sounds... Or is Pong, Pong might not be phys um, demanding enough, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. We have to wheel out the Atari. <laughs> <laughs> the Atari or the, uh, I don't know, the uh, Call of Duty. Yeah. It's pretty visually demanding. That seems pretty... That seems like a step up. <laughs> that would be a very bad idea in PTSD. Yeah. Especially yeah. if it was a, a bad... Yeah, that's a good uh, point. I probably don't want to go that route. Let's stick with Tetris. Uh, Tetris seems with Tetris. like a safer bet. But... That's, uh, <laughs> that's why I don't... Uh, that's do counseling? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. It's cool, man. You, you know, some, I would bring some, out, somebody has to do the farm. Bring out Call of Duty. Yeah. Poor veteran. Do you like? Yeah. Do you like Call of Duty? I, I, I'm a big fan. Stupid. Yeah, but uh, like Cole said, you know, CBT. If you look at the guidelines for you know the different treatment, you know, and management guidelines have been written. The the Veterans Association Department of Defense from 2017, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality from 2018. The um, American Academy of Sleep Medicine in 2018, the National Institute for Health and uh, Care Excellence in Europe is the 2018 guidelines as well. And um, all of these are starting with some form of, of CBT or therapy as the first line option. Like all of these are even some that do encourage you to at least consider medication options as first part of the first line treatment. They all still include the, the CBT and, and whatnot. Um, and in fact, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine mentions you know specifically their guidelines focused on ptsd associated nightmares and um, their first line recommendation is image rehearsal therapy 
What does that, that mean? I'm not 100% sure of what that is involved. I'm kind of curious now. It sounds like it'd be pretty uh That's not like brutal. when they show those like black blobs and then you're supposed to say what it looks like. Oh, no. You I think that's that? the aim block test. I think that's different. That is what that is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why it's a blob. Like a blob. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, well, maybe and maybe they're related. We'll, we'll, maybe they came up with a much more official sounding name than the ink blot test. Well, I feel like they nailed it with that one because that's, that's the perfect description. <laughs> right on the nose. It's the perfect description of what you're doing that's there. That's true. Um, so CBT, you know, the co is saying that if you are going to get a patient enrolled and then they're willing to, to participate in CBT, then 12 weekly sessions is usually, you know, the initial you know, duration. Um, patients are basically just taught to identify and alter the maladaptive dysfunctional cognitions that they may be having um and then you know it can be used alone like i said but also it's not wrong to use it as as a combination with medication as well um exposure therapy that's the one that uh, caught my eye as well I know. I, what was the i think i even saw it like a different prolonged what did i say prolonged exposure yeah i don't know it, it's basically like expo- you're doing you're confronting the trauma cues in order to address and lessen their importance in your your response to it sounds that. very healthy it just sounds it sounds very like something awful. sounds like something that like Jocko Willink that that navy seal commander guy yeah. I, I feel like he's like all about that. He pretty much wrote the book on yeah. exposure therapy. Yeah, he's like, you know what we're going to do? Exposure therapy. It's time to freeze in the water and <laughs> hopefully don't get eaten by sharks. Right. But, uh, yeah, so it's it's exposure therapy seems to be most appropriate for patients that have more mild symptoms. Obviously, if they're more severe, you having to put them through you know some of the, the cues and stuff may be um, – harmful for those more severe patients um it's also an option for patients who just refuse medications or or have some sort of reason why they couldn't be on a medication um you know eight to 12 sessions in which patients are initially given psychoeducation and and, and treatment rationale Um, they're also taught like breathing anxiety management techniques and then they're exposed to the cues and help them to kind of work through those and, and use the anxiety management techniques they've been taught so definitely sounds like somebody you'd have to have a very willing and, you know, compliant patient to go through that because it's probably not an easy process. I think it's important to mention that one of the medica- class of medications that's going to be, you'll probably see a lot of patients on this, and it's easy probably to prescribe it, but it's benzos mm-hmm. that the guidelines recommend against, and there isn't evidence to suggest that they reduce the core symptoms of PTSD. Um, you know, they might get the feeling that their anxiety is a little more under control, but overall it doesn't reduce the core symptoms and it may potentiate the acquisition of fear response and then um, prolong or worsen the recovery from the trauma. So um, an acute stress disorder and PTSD is recommended to avoid benzos. Yeah, definitely. Which I feel like benzos for the, like you said, are very easy to just kind of toss on there. Right. Like if, if you're, yeah, I mean, I've seen in many instances where somebody had, which you would consider, which I guess it's it's interesting because this is acute stress disorder. But then sometimes when we're talking about depression, what was what would what do they call that after like an event that causes depression adjustment disorder? I can't remember what they called it, but uh, so there's some some something that's a little that's designated a little differently when like a family member dies or something oh, like that, yeah. and, and then you they like kind of have an algorithm short term grief short term grief yeah. with depression. Um, and, but I've seen many instances when benzos were used in those instances for better or for worse. But yeah. it doesn't mean that it's going to be the best thing. There's not really any positive long-term data with PTSD. 
interestingly, early benzo administration was associated with a higher incidence of PTSD um, at one and six months follow-ups in one study. So, um, yeah. So I guess uh, before we jump into the SSRIs and some of the individual meds in these classes, um, we'll give you the password for today's post-activity test. Um, and we went with uh, an easy one today. So it's just all capital letters, PTSD23 for the year 2023, in case you are. Which is the year we're in. We're, which is so the year if you're we're listening in, to this next which, year. But we're almost out of it. Don't so. make that mistake. And then if you're listening to it in 2025, which you could also be. Maybe. Don't make that mistake. Don't either. make that mistake, but also use the password PTSD23. Yes. We don't adjust Even them. if it is 2025. We don't adjust them for the year. Yeah, that would take too, too there's too many too much room for error. <laughs> there's no way I'm thorough enough to, to not miss anything. All right, so SSRIs, you know, paroxetine and sertraline are the, the first line SSRIs that are FDA approved for acute PTSD treatment. Um, sertraline is also indicated for long-term PTSD uh, therapy and has good data long-term as well. Um, another first line option that is not necessarily FDA approved but does have good data is fluoxetine. And um, with fluoxetine, you may end up seeing doses that are a little bit higher than you're used to, uh, and you know, the 10 to 20 milligram starting dose, typically with depression, we usually cut it off at 40 milligrams. Um, but in the case of PTSD, you can go up to 60, even as you know, high as 80 milligrams per day. Is there day. an 80 milligram capsule? That sounds so familiar. I think there's a 60 milligram. Maybe not. Maybe not. But it's, yeah, it's typically like the, P- the OCD doses, which you'd see. Um, or at least potentially see with something in the recesses of my brain sees an 80 milligram fluoxetine bottle sitting on the shelf that we barely opened Mm -hmm. but i'm probably wrong about that i don't know i i I do feel like there was a 60 because it was like a weird yeah definitely yeah that's probably where it stops maybe i don't know we'll find we'll we'll google it when we get off the off (laughs) off the air here so that we can't update you (laughs) yeah but we'll up we'll be we'll we'll know though so yeah it's fine Okay, so other agents, um, you know, in this medication class, obviously SSRIs, we we tend to think of them as kind of equivalent. Um, One meta-analysis did support that there wasn't any noticeable difference or statistical difference between um, these medications being used in combat versus non-combat related PTSD either. So it's just another thing that uh, they've been assessing to see the the differences in, you know, the patient uh, trauma events, whether it be military related or whatnot. But in my personal opinion, paroxetine is is probably the one that I stay away from just because at least in depression, you know, we know it's got the shorter half-life than some of the others. It's got issues with, you know, causing potentially more um, sedation than others and and potentially more side effects overall. It also has more drug-drug interactions than a lot of the other SSRIs because of the 2D6 um, involvement. But it's one that I tend to to not go with. So if I had to pick, you know, of the three that are, you know, most widely used, I'd say sertraline or fluoxetine. And then fluoxetine, I would maybe go with in a patient who I'm worried about adherence. Yeah. Because they, you know, it's got such a long half-life. Remember, it's got an active metabolite of seven to nine days or so. And so it's got like a built-in taper. And so if you have a patient who you're really worried about getting them, you know, them being lost to follow up or what have you and you know discontinuation syndrome from a depression standpoint and you know like Cole said 80 percent of these patients are going to have depression as well um fluoxetine may be a good option so since i don't have access easy access to lexicomp right now good rx tells me it goes up to 60 milligrams but good rx also says that there's an extended release um 90 milligram once weekly is that a, yeah yeah it's that it wasn't at the it's a brand new sort of an s or something because it was the one for um 
Oh. PMDD or something, I, I believe. Something like that. Um, or, uh, it'll come to Yeah. Me. But, you know, yeah, yeah. That's uh, That was the once a week. You could do it once a week because of the long half-life. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Look at GoodRx go. Thanks, GoodRx. Um, though most retail pharmacies do not like it. Oh, yeah. I was in, or business. Or, or, or definitely or independent pharmacies. Most, most anybody. Oh, you guys, don't like, you guys don't like getting reimbursed for your meds? <laughs> I know. You guys don't like us discounting the amount that you get and clawing back some uh, DIRs? It's great. Well, <clears throat> what do you uh, do? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Just have to go to uh, Mark Cuban's uh, yeah. website. I tend to law and I declare that for everybody. <laughs> right. Um, okay, well, we do have some other antidepressants that can be used. I wonder if they're going to look at any of these new serotonin acting agents for PTSD at any point. I, but I would imagine they probably would. I think. Um, or even like the, just the Trintilix, the, and like the, the, the Lazadown. talked about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the 5-HT 1A. 1A agonist. Yep. Mm, yeah. It'd be interesting. Uh, but there's venlafaxine. Um, it's recommended as a first-line pharmacotherapeutic agent by some guidelines, but it doesn't have an actual FDA approval for PTSD. Um, 37.5 to 300 milligrams a day may be more effective for symptoms of re-experiencing and avoidance, um, than for like the hyper arousal symptoms. Um, you can start at 37.5 milligrams and increase the dose to 75 milligrams after a week and, um, increase it in increments kind of like that every couple of weeks. This is the kind of stuff I really like when it comes to picking and choosing pharmacotherapy. I like when there's nuances like that like hey, yep. hey if the patient does have specifically the symptoms more heavily focused on re-experiencing avoidance numbing then benlafaxine may be a better option. Might see some more benefit there. I love like little things like that to look for. Yeah. It makes my life so much easier when I'm not having to guess. Similarly TCAs like imipramine mm -hmm. and amitriptyline are effective in treating some of the core symptoms on the basis of um, some evidence but they are also not FDA approved for PTSD um, because of their adverse effects and specifically their risk for toxicity toxicity and overdose you probably wouldn't you might not consider them first line um, especially in individuals who are at a very high risk of attempting suicide um, but for both of them the starting dose is 25 milligrams and you can increase in 25 and 50 milligram increments every one to two weeks or so up to around 300 milligrams a day it's kind of interesting because you know with depression we tend to think more on the side of like the secondary amines, so like disipramine or triptyline, mm -hmm. um, but the tertiary amines, you know, with the amitriptyline and the imipramine, were the ones that have more data in PTSD, yeah. but definitely a lot more side effects that you have to worry about. So the anticholinergic effects are much more problematic with the the tertiary amines. The sedation tends to be worse, um, especially with the amitriptyline. Orthostatic hypotension can be really severe, especially with imipramine. Um, like Cole said, the risk of you know, QTC prolongation, cardiotoxicity is, is high. So if a patient does have any kind of suicidal ideation or anything like that, this you know, would be a medication that maybe we don't want them to have access to that they could potentially take too high of a dose. So things like that to keep in mind. But, um, you know, the, the TCAs, I feel like, are the one of the classes that just gets left off a lot of times, you know, we forget that it's it's out there, but you can make them work. It is definitely uh, something you have to be aware of and upfront with the patient about side effects. Yeah. You know, it's funny 
that in school, I, maybe it's just because we focused on general depression, but I remember thinking that TCAs were not really used for much. And then after school, I just learned all these things that TCAs are used for. I know? feel like that was my entire like pharmacotherapy knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, in school, I, I left there going like, all right. It's like they brush over these things that are like, yeah, this is more rare, so you're not going to see it as much. And then it's like, wait a minute, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that we use these things for. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of these things that I'm running into. Just because they have side effects that mean that they aren't useful in certain situations. Yeah. Um, we mentioned mirtazapine before. It's also not FDA approved for PTSD, but can be used. Starts at 15 milligrams a day at bedtime. Um, increased by 15 milligrams every couple of weeks, up to 60 milligrams, um, which exceeds the approved max dose. Um, 45 is probably what you're used to seeing. Um, but there's some evidence that to suggest that that could be beneficial in and PTSD. We mentioned phenylzine briefly, also not FDA approved, but there was a meta-analysis um, that showed efficacy and tolerability um, compared with placebo and other active treatments starting at 30 milligrams a day, um, increasing to 45 milligrams after a week. You can increase a little more from there to a max dose of 90 milligrams per day, but it has side effects like Mike mentioned and toxicities being an MAOI and Make sure you separate it adequately from the SSRI if you're trying to convert. And that's what I was going to say that's definitely probably an issue here because, I mean, it would be with depression most likely as well, but the patient's probably already on an SSRI or SNRI, and if you're going to switch them to something like an MAOI, you really have to, it's not a matter of, are we going to cross taper? Are we going to do that? No, we got to stop stop it for two wash weeks, it wash yep. it out. If it's, you're using fluoxetine because of the long half-life, you got to wait five to six weeks to wash it out. So it, it is definitely a, a long process. And then um, did you mention the, the tyramine? containing foods. So one of the things to watch for, and I mentioned the dietary restrictions earlier, but what I was getting at is um, you have to avoid foods that are high in tyramine. So things like aged cheese, um, preserved meats. Uh, I always think of uh, that stupid, um, I can never think of the name, um, charcuterie. Charcuterie. Yeah, I hate this the, one, the least name. the least favorite word of all time. But during Thanksgiving, Anna really likes to make a very elaborate charcuterie board. Uh-huh. You know, that's like a popular thing yeah, to yeah. do. So we have this giant board of charcuterie, or this giant charcuterie board, I should say, that she fills up with all sorts of, I don't know, these tyramine containing foods, salami, and these different meats that I've never seen before, and these little like oranges with chocolate around them and these little say all sorts of food that i would not normally eat and then i i don't know i don't know that i like those yeah meats that are like i don't know sealed in plastic you know yeah it's like a lot many, of people do but i don't yeah. really care for them too. not my favorite either but that's what you have to put on a charcuterie board apparently. you have to yeah you, you can't, can't just, just put a bagel you can't take the you know honey roast turkey breast and toss it the on the boar's head makes right it's got to be the, the like nonsense the packaged ones with the film around them that are you know in the shape of a sausage right that's what goes on a charcuterie board it, and, and, and cheeses and it is those rules are extremely rigid everything about charcuterie it, because people drink wine with charcuterie everything yeah. about charcuterie is like tyramine high yeah tyramine to the max i mean if you have to watch that because of the tyramine levels build up in your system you can basically precipitate a hypertensive crisis so you have to be aware of that plus all the other side effects like cole mentioned as well um, definitely can make it a problematic and a very much a last line <laughs> option. Yeah, side effect of almost choking on the edible wrapping around the pastrami <laughs> yeah. or whatever. You have to eat. I'm like, why different... is there such a thick this coating is... around this meat? What is this? <laughs> it's this like, is is, really am I, did you. I unpackage it or not? 
Yeah, yeah, this is, I feel like you might have some PTSD about <laughs> eating some plastic. I promise we're not making light of PTSD. Yeah, no. I'm, but I feel like you brought it up more than, yeah. more than I would expect more than a, normal your, person a, a healthy would, quality of life. Would talk about the charcuterie. Right. Yeah. And you, you just, death, I could feel the cortisol levels being affected. I feel bad because she put so much work into it. I'm like, what is this meat? <laughs> okay. Also, I ordered most. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I catered most for everybody. The, the, and did you mention the Fazodone already? I didn't. No, I hadn't gone there. That's another one that I thought was kind of interesting. They they mentioned as a potential, you know, antidepressant option if you've already gone through SSRI and whatnot. Nefazidone. When's the last time you heard anybody on? I was nefazidone? like, what? I was literally thinking, what's the brand name of Nefazidone? And I looked, and it's like old and even it's not yeah. even something you see. Well, it's it's one of those things that, uh, from a side effect standpoint, you know, it, it does you know, have similar side effects to something like trazodone as far as the orthostatic hypotension and whatnot, but it just, it doesn't have the same affinity for histamine receptors. So it is less sedating. Um, but it, it's a three, a four inhibitor, a pretty potent one. So lots of drug, drug interactions. And, uh, it's also potentially can be uh, hepatotoxic. And so monitoring LFTs is important. And it's just one of those medications. You got to take it multiple times a day. It's just, there's better options that have better profiles as far as the adverse effects go. So it, I would be surprised if you see too many of these, uh, the Fazenone prescriptions running around nowadays. Yeah. Um, a couple other options that would not be considered first line, um, but might be able to be used or uh, or used if the patient has concomitant other issues that they could be, they could be helpful for. Anticonvulsants, um, as an adjunctive therapy, some open-label studies have suggested some limited or mixed efficacy with Depakote, carbamazepine, gabapitin, Topamax, um, even Lamictal, and um, uh, they seem to be most beneficial with uh, the symptom of re-experiencing. There's also second-generation antipsychotics. Um, the guidelines, some guidelines, do you actually recommend these as um, augmentation, second- or third-line therapy, uh, though recent evidence supporting them has been limited. Um, so generally, we, we would avoid them if possible. Yeah, or at least, yeah, definitely saving them for yeah. further down the treatment algorithm. Sure. Now, the other thing that you may run into with PTSD is, is patients on um, prezosin. So the androgenic inhibitors can help with the actual treatment of, of the nightmares or, or sleep-related symptoms associated with PTSD. So the thought process is, at least the postulated mechanism of action, is the androgenic blockade that, that prezosin is, is uh, causing modifies memory consolidation and disrupts the fear recollection process. That's so interesting. pretty wild. Um, but it is one of those things, there's good data it's to just support. Like it's It's exactly like Tetris. <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth. No idea how it's like Tetris, but uh, the the VA collaborative study and a randomized controlled trial of veterans suggested that um, prezosin is similar to placebo, and so there are some thoughts that some selection bias may have influenced the results. And you know, the uh, authors did acknowledge some um, the the, pen, the patients may benefit from treatment with prezosin, but their data did causing you know calling into question whether how you know how effective it truly is yeah so think of that as more for the nightmare side of things you know an augmentation option for nightmare you know treating nightmares associated with it but not a uh, overall 
first line option. I remember this. I guess this must have been relatively hot off the presses when I was popping through school because I remember a few <laughs> popping through school. A few um, like journal clubs where this was discussed. One with Dr. Bragg, and I remember uh, there's definitely it's questionable, but it's just one of those situations where you're going to use whatever you can, similar to how they're looking at. Um, uh, you know, um, like a, other illicit substances for mm-hmm. PTSD and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, which uh, I think that's going to end up being probably more effective than some of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, the reason why there is some, you know, hesitation with like prisoners being an alpha blocker, obviously there's a lot of side effects associated with it, especially if it's an older patient. You know, we may have to worry about um, syncope and, and you know, that orthostatic hypotension, dizziness, you know, in general, um, urinary incontinence can occur in some patients. And, um, you know, in younger patients, especially male patients, we may have to worry about preopism as, as far as, you know, the chronic use of, of a alpha blocker. Um, we potentially have to, in a patient who, who may need like cataract surgery or something, um, intraoperative floppy iris syndrome can occur. It's one of those things that sounds funny until you have it. Right. Yeah, you do not want the floppy. I, want I, the floppy I, have, I have run into one patient who had this on his uh, medical chart. Did you see it, like, when it was happening? I, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I, I can't even I envision can't, what that would look like. I feel like they, and I'm going to sound stupid because I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. I'm just answering questions. It's but, best to do that instead of just Googling your picture. Like no, I was about it to. is. I feel like, yeah, yeah I'll save it because I feel like <laughs> I'm going to say something. I'm going to make myself look so dumb. <laughs> I was going to say something stupid. All right, so moving on from that. <laughs> See, I saved it. I've, I've matured. But lots of side effects with, with the uh, alpha blockers, so just be careful with that. All right, so we've talked about a lot of these different treatment options and things, and, and you know, we have it kind of broken into two different timelines, if you will. So we have the acute phase, you know, where we're trying to get full resolution of um, symptoms would be ideal, but we, we also know that that's probably not going to happen in most patients. So we're just trying to get the symptoms to improve and, you know, encouraging the patient that it, it may be a slow process, but we're going to continue to make progress. And then regardless of medication that's been selected during the acute phase, you know, we always want to start with a lower dose, you know, at the initiation and of, of the medication and then gradually titrate it upwards. Um, and then a, a period of 12 weeks at, at max tolerated doses is what we would technically use as a appropriate determination of response. So that being said, getting patients to the max dose may not be the easiest course of action and then also to the 12 weeks is a long time to to wait so um yeah it's one of those things that uh hopefully the patient starts getting some improvement quicker than that but just again being realistic with them as far as the the timeline goes so that they don't think that it's a lost cause um i've got two things one if you're squeamish about eyes never google some nonsense like floppy (laughs) irish syndrome the amount of forceps and things that are in these people's eyeballs is insane. Cole's um, very focused on this I episode. I really don't want to look at this again. Um, <laughs> but for those who are wondering, one, I don't think you could really notice from the naked eye that somebody has floppy iris syndrome, even though it, it sounds like it would be very apparent. That's good, because I did not notice anything weird about the patient's eyes. I figured it was because they had stabilized it. There you go. <laughs> the but floppy it, iris. It's characterized by loss of muscle tone in the iris with the symptom triad of pupil constriction despite preoperative dilation with standard midriatic drugs, fluttering and bellowing of the iris stroma, and a marked tendency for the iris to prolapse towards the side port incisions. Mm. Floppy iris syndrome. Sounds not, not ideal. No. 
All right, so I did mention the acute phase, and then Cole got really excited about his his pictures he found on Google Images. But I was very distressed, really. Yeah, 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 that's true. But we uh, also had the continuation phase after we've kind of moved past that acute process. You know, the continuation phase is something that we're uh, hopefully continuing the improvement of symptom you know process over time, and you know improved quality of life. And we typically see continued improvement even at six and 12 month mark after treatment initiation. So again, just to reiterate, very long process potentially. Okay. So how are we going to monitor? What are we going to follow up on? Um, there are some baseline labs that you want to get just in general with the medications, CBC, CMP, thyroid, um, that sort of thing. We need to assess response. We talked about some of the rating scales to assess severity and help with diagnosis. Um, all three symptom domains should be evaluated using the standardized rating scales. Um, question the patient about other symptoms. How's their sleep? Are they having outbursts of anger? Are they irritable? Are they having any other disabilities? Um, encourage them to keep a diary of their symptoms um, to note the date and the presence of symptoms of intrusion, avoidance, mood, <clears throat> reactivity. Include concurrent conditions like panic attacks or suicidal thoughts. Um, and have them note adverse effects to the medications. Patients with PTSD are sensitive to medication adverse effects. Um, somatic responses, just generally speaking, are common with patients with PTSD, so um, they might be a little more susceptible to them, so just uh, keep an eye on that. What are we trying to achieve? Full remission of symptoms and return to pre-morbid function is ideal. So that would be the ultimate goal, um, though not necessarily... Um, Realistic in every case, or at least you need to make baby steps towards that. It's important yeah. to note that um, they'll need to be tailored to the individual, right? If and if we're just kind of like exercise, you know, you're looking if you can't expect 150 minutes a week for everybody, um, can't expect full remission for everybody, but baby steps is is the goal. Yeah. Um, during the acute phase, patients should be seen. This is just general recommendations weekly for the first four weeks, and then every other week and then evaluate them on a monthly basis to monitor symptom change over time. They can be extended every one to two months um, during the latter six months of the year of therapy. Um, yeah, just to give you a, kind of an idea of how to follow up with them. All right, so I'm going to actually switch over. For those of you who are watching the video version, I'm going to switch over to my computer screen here. So this is a, a website that was made by that uh, by Dr. David Osser. He's the the uh, psychiatrist that was out of Harvard Medical that um, wrote the depression algorithm that we used for our depression episode and then also he wrote anxiety and PTSD algorithms and several other uh, disease states. But this is his website you can get on and um, look at the digital versions of his algorithm flowcharts and uh, just go to the website It's and I'll, I'll post it in the show notes so you can, you can see it. But go to algorithms, click on PTSD, and uh, you can kind of walk through his his version of, of the algorithm and so to kind of walk through some of this you know the he, he gets the diagnosis of ptsd and then assesses sleep disturbed you know disturbances and if you know the patient is having nightmares um obviously prezosin can be considered at that point maybe even trazodone if it's just sleep initiation it's the main issue and for the overall ptsd symptoms usually like cole said an ssri is where we typically start and then if the patient you know, has already 
had a partial response, um, always making sure that we're assessing for any kind of psychosis that may also be present. Because if there is, that may push us towards an antipsychotic, obviously, earlier than um, we normally would. And uh, if there's no psychosis present, but their symptoms are not in remission, then, you know, you can try a second SNRI, or excuse me, a second SSRI and SNRI or mirtazapine, like Cole's talking about earlier. If still no response, then we're going to switch to a third option that we have not used at this point, or nefazodone would also be a potential option there. If there's a partial response, then we want to look for a few different augmentation options. And the reason I want to pull his algorithm up is I like how he kind of has this laid out. So he says that if the, you know, you're just looking for overall um, augmentation options, you can consider things like quetiapine, clonidine, um, you know, if they're on prezidose and you, you maybe don't want to put them on, clonidine as well, it could cause some potential interactions. Um, if the patient is having um, issues, you know, specifically with hyperarousal and, 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 you know, those type of symptoms, specifically the, the, the quetiapine and clonidine do tend to be the best options. And then re-experiencing symptoms, like Cole said, um, you can also uh, consider those antipsychotics as well as spiridone, aripiprazole, and then some of the mood stabilizers like lotrogene and topiramate. And then avoidance symptoms, consider aripiprazole and lamotrigine as augmentation options. Those tend to be better um, at treating that particular type of symptom. And then all symptoms in general, obviously prezosin can help with on the nightmare side and, and it also can help with augment some of the SSRI effects as well. But then we also have our MAOI inhibitor, the um, phenlazine, and Kepra has some data as well in these patients overall. So again, those are all augmentation options. And if, if you're just listening, um, please check out the show notes and go to his, his website. And like I said, it's a free website and um, just check out the, the algorithm so it makes sense what I'm talking about as I'm just rattling drugs off. What I love about this algorithm is you know he did it himself. Oh, yeah, because the a, arrows are just everywhere. A number everywhere. of the arrows, not only are they everywhere, but they, they, they're, they they're not hand-drawn. Oh, yeah. They're not... It's, it's not like they use the function to make it a perfect angle. It's like it was hand drawn to the next box. What what he lacks in Photoshop skills, though, <laughs> he definitely makes up for in his ability to, to do psychiatry. Knowledge. Yeah, it's a very solid algorithm, just a hilarious it, way. To it, and if, it. if I had to pick between the two, because <laughs> this honestly, this looks like some. I'm sitting here looking at this, going, "This looks pretty good." You can you can definitely follow. It, it looks it looks a lot like something I would make. The uh, right, exactly. That's what it's something. Which it looks it, like something I would make. Now that I say that out loud, it's like, oh, that is hilarious. Right, <laughs> that, shouldn't, that shouldn't be. A website, right? But it's yeah, funny. definitely uh, check check out the website. Check out all his algorithms. He's I really like the way he kind of pieces all the data together. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of a, a broad overview. I know we spent a lot of time talking about background information and screening, but I feel like it's a lot more complex than people give it credit to. Yeah, I think that's important in this diagnosis. Yeah, for sure. So um, remember, if you are a free CE member. Use the password we gave you earlier and access that post-activity test. Get your one-hour continuing education credit, pharmacists and nurses, and uh, anyone who's an you know, unlimited member at FreeC.com can, can get access to any of our accredited episodes. Big thanks to them for continuing to partner with us, and um, you know they've been great to work with. Also, uh, want to make sure that you check out Patreon, um, which has the more traditional style lectures on it, PowerPoint slides, uh, things like that, the boring lectures style type uh, content, and um, less tangents and, and distractions, though, so that, that may be better for some of you. And uh, if you join 
Bitcoin now and you pay for a whole year up front, which is like $30 and some change, you get a digital copy of High Powered Medicine, um, the landmark clinical trial reviews book uh, made by Alex Poppin, um, who's a uh, PharmD and uh, also an author now. And this, this book's in its second edition. I'm working on the third edition. Uh, he is currently, and it's it's got over 150 summaries of landmark clinical trials and wow. very good resource. So make sure you check that out and uh, take advantage of that. Thanks to him for sponsoring the podcast and offering that uh, digital copy for our, our Patreon subscribers. Um, if you have any questions for Cole or myself, uh, we'll have our emails in the show notes. Um, you can reach us at the phone number by text. Um, it's also in the show notes. And I'll say right now I have 24 text messages on there, and I don't even know how many emails. So I promise I'm not trying to ignore you, but, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. So we will get back to you as quick as we can. And uh, if we do leave you, if we don't respond, feel free to shoot us a little nudge and send the send the text again and we'll get back to you thank you guys so much for listening thanks for all the support and if you have any topics or anything you want to suggest we definitely would like to hear that as well anyways thank you all so much we'll see you in the next episode bye